The shadows of storm and night. The mysteries of life and light. From unearthly peculiarities, celestial and divine, to apparitions and transcendental signs. You're listening to To The Spirit Podcast. Hi, friends, and welcome to The Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Beck. And I'm your co-host, Steph. Hi, Steph. Hi, Beck. I'm going to murder my cat. <laughs> He's a podcast kitty. He has to be in every podcast. So when you hear those little meows in the background, that's my kitten. Wants to be part of the action. Sometimes I let him in. Sometimes I throw him out. He's out. Today's guest was awesome. I really enjoyed speaking with her. She was a wealth of information, a lot of history, a lot of great stories that she shared. What'd you think, Steph? I thought it was great. Yeah. I wish that I could have been there. Sometimes I miss out on all these interviews, but what you showed me, unbelievable. Yeah, I wish you could have been there too, but it's okay. It's okay. There's there's always another interview around the corner. Before I lead into the interview, Steph, where can people find us? You can find us on Google Earth. Google. Zoom Google. in wait, 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 wait. really Google. hard. No. And I'm... <laughs> Not Google Earth. <laughs> Try again. Okay. Google Google Podcasts. Google Podcasts. <laughs> Where else can they find us, Steph? Uh, 308. No, no, wait, wait, no. Whoa, whoa, don't give your address out. <laughs> we don't want any stalkers or murderers coming. Okay. Okay. Where else could they find us? Apple. Apple. <laughs> That's right, folks. You can find us on Google Podcasts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify. All the platforms. All the platforms. We're there. And if we're not there, you demand that we get on them. That's just because. Need. Yeah. <laughs> But also, you can get in contact with us. And if you want to leave us a message, you can go to anchor.fm slash to the spirit and leave us a message right on the page. Or you can email us to the spirit pod at gmail.com. Feel free to send us a message if there's somebody you'd like to hear interviewed, if you have a story you want to share, anything, right? Absolutely anything. Absolutely. As long as it's spirit related right we don't want any of your uh, porn links or bible verses okay <laughs> without further ado we're going to move right on to our guest my guest today is a writer editor and historian who worked in magazine journalism for many years she just finished writing a history book that should be published by next year she was born into a family that had been practicing spiritualists back to the last half of the 19th century by the 1980s, she was experiencing after-death communication as a medium, but needed something more to reassure her. That was when she discovered Sarah Estep and her EVP researchers group. EVP and later instrumental transcommunication gave her the exterior evidence she needed to support her psychic abilities. As a perpetual lurker, my guest watched carefully the developments in EVP and ITC since the 1980s. She's able to pick out patterns in the history of ITC. She believes no one else who had ego involved could. Please welcome Anne Longmore Etheridge. Hi, Anne. Thanks for coming on the program today. Hi, thank you for asking me to be here. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Tell me, where can people find your work? Uh, right now, the best place to look would be my blog, which is called Your Dying Charlotte. And it's at yourdyingcharlotte.com. You're currently working on a history book? Yes, we're in the middle of uh, the historical society that I work with here in Frederick County, Maryland. 
we're putting together a book about this particular area, and I just finished writing it. It's in the editing phase now. That should be coming out probably mid-next year, I think. Oh, that sounds really interesting. As an ITC researcher myself, um, I too see the prevalence of the ego saturated within the field. Can you tell me more about finding your way into the world of EVP and ITC? Sure. Um, in the 1980s, as I said, I was looking for some exterior proof of what I was receiving as a medium. And I happened across a book that was written by Sarah Eastep called Voices of Eternity. And I read it and was amazed. It was really the first time that I had heard anything about EVP at all. And at that stage in the game, of course, we're talking about taping just reel-to-reel or cassette tape. Sarah used reel-to-reel. At the end of the book, Sarah was lovely enough to provide a mailing address for people to write to her. And so I did. And that sort of began my interaction with her group. It was called the American Association of Electronic Voice Phenomena. And it had probably, at that point, I'm going to say it had maybe 200 members. And a lot of them were people that were really quite well known around the world as after-death researchers and included, you know, people from Italy, from Europe, from England, from the United States, from Brazil. It was quite a large group of people. And because there was no internet at the time, at first we all had to communicate through this wonderful old school newsletter that Sarah used to produce where she'd talk about the findings different people had gotten, the examples different people had gotten. And later on, when the Internet became available and there was such a thing as the old Yahoo groups, I don't know if you remember those. Oh, yeah. But we had an AAEVP Yahoo group where we could send files back and forth finally and actually hear what each other was doing. And that was very fascinating. And some of the people that were in that room at the time included Frank Sumption who is well-known for inventing the ghost box. So I first met Frank back in the early 1990s, I think it was. Wow. And he was kind enough to give me a Frank's box, so I actually do have one of his boxes. Oh, you're very Um, lucky. Very lucky. I cherish it. I really do. It's one of the funniest things, the way that he, he was such a mad scientist, and he would just cobble these things together from just bits and pieces. just delightful it really is but frank and i were were friends for a long time he had a lot of people on the internet who really supported his work and supported him personally and i was lucky enough to count myself as one of those so we did know each other for quite a while we'd been out of touch for just a little bit when suddenly i heard that he had a heart attack and passed away Mm -hmm. and it was very sad but i i very quickly heard from him so i've heard from him several times since he uh since he's been on the other side. So oh. that's been a comfort. Yeah, the community as a whole really celebrated Frank and, and really miss him. Frank was a very funny, very funny person. And he also had a very short temper at times. He didn't suffer fools gladly. And he really wanted people to stop trying to peg 
what we were getting into pre-existing slots, be that Christianity or New Age religion or whatever. He kept saying all the time that he just wanted people to listen to what they were getting and to stop trying to make it fit a narrative that already existed. And I agreed with him in that because I thought the work was so fascinating that we needed to just listen to what they had to say and listen to the clues that they were giving us as to what life actually is like after death or in another dimension. And like Sarah, who was the first person, I think, to publicly admit that she was getting communication from what we can put in quotes as aliens, of course, Frank did too. And they were both brave enough to make that statement. So whether these aliens are literal little gray men or whether they are coming from another dimension to us is something we still don't really have an answer to, although I do think potentially that the second answer may be correct. But it was not just dead humans. It was other things as well that were communicating. Now, when you had first began, before Frank produced his box, were you using an old reel-to-reel, or how, how were you getting your communication? Yeah. yeah. Um, I started off with my father's old reel-to-reel from the 1950s, and it was just the most rickety, hilarious machine, really. And eventually, I asked Sarah if she could help me find a slightly more modern one. And Sarah's husband, Charlie, found me one. He was always on the lookout for them. He found me one, and I used that for a while. I tried with cassettes, and sometimes I got things, but it was just that technological period where things just were sort of in flux, and the cassette never really worked as well as the reel-to-reel for some reason. And then after that, of course, we all started to go to to the ITC, to the digital versions of it, using the early digital recorders. Did you find a difference between using the old reel-to-reel and moving into the well more modern technology? Did you see an uptick? I, yes, I absolutely did. I think when digital recording became available, a couple things happened. I think one is just a, an attribute of the technology itself, that you were getting a, a better sound quality. And, you know, in the old days, for us to be able to share them, like I still have somewhere in my house here, cassette tapes that Sarah used to make of her greatest hits EVPs. Oh, that's cool. And send them to people who asked for them. But you lose a level of quality that way when you're taking it from the original reel-to-reel to the cassette. Whereas with the digital, you don't. And the digital, of course, has that ability now to clean it up and to strip away the background noise and those things, slow it down to really be able to analyze it much better and hear it much better. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, the, the digital, I think, is what made all the difference. I agree. I came into the game a lot later, so I was lucky enough to come in when ghost boxes had already been in the hands of the public, and I was able to come in using a computer. I think I started with a handheld digital recorder, but I had to teach myself how to use the editing software on a computer to actually really analyze, like you said, and get into the EVPs itself. Yeah, I had to 
do it too. And I, I must admit, I'm still not really proficient. I don't feel like I probably could be a lot better, but I'm, I'm getting old, you know? Oh. <laughs> Age is just a number. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> as an aside here, I'll preface it by saying that a lot of the EVPs that I sent you as examples here came from Gettysburg. And I live only about, I would say, 30 miles from Gettysburg. I'm right actually between Gettysburg and Antietam. So the Civil War has been sort of a very big part of my life because I'm literally like living on the lands where it all happened. That is, to me, it's endlessly fascinating. And when I first started to ghost hunt in Gettysburg, I never imagined that I was going to end up getting the things that I got. I honestly was not sure if I believed the hype of how uh, haunted Gettysburg is, but in fact, it is every inch as haunted as people make it out to be. So I frequently go up there and sometimes spend the night at the Cash Town Inn, which is exceedingly haunted. But other times I will just go with a friend and Literally, we'll just drive around the battlefield and I'll roll down the window and basically kind of turn on whatever ghost box application I have with me and stick the microphone out the window and just ask somebody to say something. So this was the case not so long ago, me and my niece and her mother, we were up there driving around. So we did this drive-by EVP. And when we played it back, we got two male voices talking to each other. And the first male voice said, what's the coffee? And the second male voice said, official dark booth. And we were completely confused because we were on the battlefield and they're talking about coffee. And there was another not as clear EVP connected to it that sounded, it almost sounded like two people passing each other and acknowledging each other, one said private, and the other said private, like almost as if they were doffing their caps to each other. So we started wondering why would these very cheerful sounding soldiers be lingering on this part of the battlefield where absolutely nothing happy happened. And I still don't have an answer to that. I have a theory. I'll get to that. At any rate, we started to look up coffee, started to research coffee. And up until this point, I had no idea how important coffee was to the Union and Confederate soldiers. Union soldiers were very lucky because they received with their rations a certain amount of coffee beans. And basically, the Union Army ran on caffeinated coffee. Some generals apparently would make sure that their men were incredibly caffeinated before battle. And from the time, one diarist noted that as soon as the Union Army stopped anywhere for any period of time, these little campfires would pop up, hundreds of them, and all you would hear was the sound of coffee grinders crushing beans. So they were very, very into their coffee, whereas the Confederates didn't get coffee because of the Union blockade. So they turned to things like chicory coffee and other vegetable-based, non-caffeinated coffees. So Ew. It Ugh. was immensely important to them. <laughs> I'm sure. And the more that I thought about it, sort of the funnier it got, because the second soldier called the coffee official dark boots. And what we know 
the official part was, of course, that it was given to the union from the government, so it certainly was official. And over and over again in the historic records, they talk about the fact that the soldiers, you know, would basically boil it to sludge, so it certainly was dark. And as far as the boots go, it gave you the strength to march. And it just, the more that I learned, the funnier that got. And then I realized that that's exactly what we do today. Independent coffee houses name their various brands different things, don't they? Yes. So it really seemed to me to sort of back up what the soldiers had said, that they were drinking their morning coffee or their afternoon coffee, and they were calling it official dark food. So just to wrap that up, I started to wonder about the cheerfulness of it all and why that would be at that place on the battlefield. And I just started to postulate that perhaps we have at Gettysburg not only a ghost population of soldiers who fought there, but perhaps we also have a ghost population of reenactors who see it as their personal heaven and wish to stay and enjoy themselves. So that set me on a long uh, thinking spell about the possibility that we have a population that is from multiple time periods, potentially all hanging out together and having their morning cuppa together, you know, on the battlefield. I'd love to play this EVP for my listeners now. So I'm going to go ahead and play that official dark boots. So I think that name is great for a coffee company because they have Black Rifle Coffee as well. Mm -hmm. And that's a great name if you ever wanted to start a coffee company. I know some friends of mine were talking to friends that they had at various little coffee shops to see if they would make their own brand with that name as kind of a joke for me. Yeah, I just I still find it to be totally amazing. Tell me, have have you received any other communication? Yes, um, still at Gettysburg, a good friend and I named Simone. We uh, have done over the years a lot of EVP and ITC work together. And on this particular night, we had taken one of the many tours that are available in Gettysburg, the many ghost-themed tours. This one we like and we've done multiple times because they take you to three different places in Gettysburg that they have permission to access. And then for people who don't have their own equipment, They provide them everything they need. Oh, nice. And it's a a three-hour ghost hunt, an hour in each place. So the first place that we went, and to this day, I'm not sure where it was because it was pitch dark night, and I had no idea where we were. I was following the driver leader to get there. But they called it the Battlefield House, and it's a house that borders the battlefield that they know from historic research was one of the many places used as a field hospital. So all of the horror stories that we know about Civil War medicine, a lot of it was taking place there. So we went upstairs in the house to one of the empty rooms. And as soon as we went into this room, it just felt electric almost in there. It was substantially colder than the other rooms in the house. And Simone had a digital recorder in her hand, and she was stood in the middle of this room, 
and she said, I feel like somebody is touching my hand. So I stood next to her, and the area that was right around her, it felt like it was your quintessential cold spot that people talk about. It was even colder than the rest of the cold room. So she asked some questions, and one of them, the first one was to Confederate doctors who they believe were working in the building, and she asked them, did you operate here? Are you still here now? Did you operate? Did you amputate limbs, I think was the preceding question. And a male voice answers, I would have, yes. I thought that was very fascinating in retrospect because of the verb tense that he used. He didn't say, I did, yes. He didn't say, I am, yes. He said, I would have, yes, which indicated to me that he was aware that time had passed to some degree. He was aware that he wasn't still trapped in the moment, which is a big theory, of course, that, you know, maybe they're just reliving the moment over and over again. Clearly, this entity was not doing that. So it was a really fascinating EVP. I'm going to play that EVP for my listeners now. So the second EVP from the Battlefield House was something that we found afterwards. It wasn't a response to a question, but it it was collected when Simone was standing in the middle of this room. She said she felt like somebody was touching her. And I think it's a voice with a Southern accent. I feel fairly certain about that. Said we talk about you or we're talking about you. I'm not sure which one it is, but I think it's we talk about you. And I'll play this for the listeners to hear. So this next DVP, it's quite old. I believe I captured it using one of Frank's boxes back in the, I think it was in the early 2000s. And a long time ago, when I was a child, I had this really amazing dream, and I I never forgot it. And the dream was that I was in a canoe with Abraham Lincoln, (laughs) and he was rowing this canoe, and this river that we were on, it was just pitch black. You couldn't actually even see the water, and above was this sky full of stars, and here was Lincoln taking me down this river. So all those years later, I recorded this EVP, which seems to say, Lincoln talking, stroking past. And immediately I was like, that's a reference to this dream that I had had all those years ago. Oh, that's so cool. Now, do you believe you have a connection to Lincoln? Um, I don't know if I have a direct connection to Lincoln. I wouldn't say, <laughs> I wouldn't say we're friends or anything. <laughs> but Lincoln in the spiritualist church played a really sort of strong and repeating role. I can remember my father telling me stories about seances that he had been to sort of back in the classic day of manifestation mediumship and all that and 
I remember him telling me at one of these seances that Lincoln had appeared and walked around the room. I'm not making any claims as to whether this was real or not, but Lincoln as a figure appeared a lot to spiritualists. I've heard that. Um, I've heard that before. Yeah. And of course, my connection to history and to the Civil War, I've always really adored Lincoln. And so for me to get this message, which was a personal one, was really, really special. Now, as a sidelight, at the same time in the general overall ITC world as it was in the late 1990s and early 2000s, I was not the only person hearing from Lincoln. We seem to have this long period where a lot of different researchers kept hearing from Lincoln and also from Edison. And I actually have another EVP that I did not send where it simply is those two names, Lincoln and Edison. And they seem to be appearing to everyone they could appear to. I was under the impression that what was going on was something akin to the much earlier cross-correspondences case where mediums in different countries had been getting automatic writing that complemented what the other was doing without knowing anything about it. And I thought that's what they were trying to do, was just to show us that they could talk to different people, some of them in other countries, and produce very similar messages, which sort of brings me to the fact that a lot of things like this that were going on, I didn't feel were properly recognized or if they were recognized at all, because in the sort of ITC culture at that time, which was brand new, and frankly, back then, sometimes slightly frightening in some ways, because it was so new and it was so clear. There were a lot of people who were struggling with their own, <laughs> their own egos, really and trying to deal with the fact that they were regularly receiving this communication. I think for some of them, it caused real problems and a lot of infighting as people tried to sort of take their place as the uh, prophet of who knew best. They sort of stopped paying attention to the results that we were getting as an aggregate, as opposed to just what they were getting, but what someone else was getting and who was wrong and who was right. And the whole Lincoln Edison thing, I feel like, sort of got lost in this sort of battle of egos. And there were other things that were happening at the time that did the same, in particular, the rise of what I call the technicians who appear to be entities on the other side who almost seem to be at the time, the way that I always envisioned them was like they were the radio DJs, they were the TV control room that yeah. seemed to be allowing this communication to happen. And there seemed to be, back then, a technician or two who was assigned to an individual ITC researcher, and they would usually give their names. Nobody seemed to notice what I did, which was, a lot of the same names kept repeating over and over and over. Interesting. And and to different people, again, in different countries, you know, with no real physical contact with each other, a lot of these names were the same, which gave credence to the fact that this was a, a sort of a tight-knit working group on their side. 
the most striking name, and this is something that I have I've been dying for many years to talk about, because you still see it today, was that the lead technician, his name was Michael. Everybody heard from Michael at one time or another. And even to this day, people like Steve Huff, they're seeing Michael as an archangel. They can visualize him that way if they choose. But people like Steve Huff are still getting their communication from Michael. I think it's the same Michael. I was recently just blown away watching Hellier. Are you familiar with that series, Hellier? I'm not. Okay. It's a two-season-at-this-part documentary about a group of paranormal researchers. It's true. This is not the drama. And their adventures, they've sort of been sucked down the rabbit hole of some very strange paranormal experiences and, and their pursuit of trying to figure out what's going on. And one of the things that they did was they developed a method of communication where one of them puts on a device that completely blocks the senses, a blindfold devices so they can't hear outside sounds. And then what they play through the headphones that they have on is just the feed from, I, I believe they were playing the feed from a ghost box. So in Hellier, in one of the episodes, one of these researchers is listening to this ghost box feed. And what he's supposed to do is whenever he hears something that he thinks is a message, should just say whatever he thinks was said. He's doing so. And the people who are not in the sensory blind are asking questions. I believe one of them asked for the name of who's this entity that's communicating. And the name, of course, was Michael. And I just felt like this is the same entity. So there's a lot of people out there that seem to be getting communication from someone called Michael. And I think being able to look back on it in the last 30 years, I think that Michael is the head of whoever is trying to make ITC work. Very interesting. I would have to agree because I believe even working myself in ITC, I do have technicians that come in and name themselves. Now, I've never had Michael as my technician, but I have had problems with my technology and asked for their guidance and help. And literally, it just somehow fixed itself. And sometimes it wasn't instantaneous. Sometimes it would just, it would take 10, 20 minutes, but then somehow it would regulate and I'd be able to get my session back up online or finish what I was doing or maybe might have lost something that I needed really badly and my heart broke like, oh my God, an hour worth of recording is gone and it reappeared. So I do believe there are technicians that work on the other side to help assist with the recordings and the communication. Yeah. And that seems to be really steady right across the board to this day. I mean, if you look at any researchers who are sharing their results, all of them seem to have a fairly steady group of entities around them who are facilitating their work. I think it's pretty much universal. Yeah. And I agree also with you in regards to ego, because I still find that that's flowing into today. I think there are a lot of people out there to make a name for themselves and a brand and yeah. they lose the meaning in what they're doing. The fact is you're supposed to be serving spirit. Yeah. They want to go viral. It's really yeah. sad. Yeah. And I agree. And, and I think a lot of them 
because I think they don't understand the history of how ITC developed and what came before them. Everybody sort of jumps into it as if nothing has ever come before in some ways. I think that they are much more prone to having to repeat the process that people in the past, you know, 30 to 40 years already went through, which is this struggle with ego, the struggle with trying to reconcile the fact that something beyond the norm is speaking to you. And I've seen it mess up so many people and cause so much fighting when it was completely unnecessary. But it was, it really truly was an ego struggle. Very true. The pioneers, yeah. they worked very hard to establish this communication to take the time, the same time every day to sit down and work. And I think a lot of the modern culture, the pop culture with the TV shows that are presented, I think people just want to jump right in and they think, I'm going to talk to a dead person. I don't think they understand the depth and complexity of it. And I think they can invite in things that are not so savory <laughs> along the way with that as well. Very interesting points. Now, you had some other EVPs that went along with some of your stories I'd love to hear. Okay. So Simone and I were staying at the Cashtown Inn, and that is an inn that was there at the time, and it was temporarily taken over by Confederate forces when right in the lead up to the Battle of Gettysburg. So what we've encountered there over the years has been a number of entities who appear to be soldiers. And this one definitely appears to be a soldier. He told us that he had he had hit my head and broke it. That was how he died. So that's what that EVP is. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and play that EVP for you now. <laughs> So that was very interesting. <laughs> I hit yeah. my head and broke it. <laughs> it's an interesting term to use. Yeah, hit my head and broke it. I know. It was, it, some of the things that we got were just so, they were astounding. Next EVP is even more astounding in my mind. We were, again, taping there. I believe this might have been the same session, I think. We got a male voice that sounds so broken up and dispirited that at the time, I just remember it just wrung my heart when I heard it. It sounds to me like an older man. And we were just sort of generally talking to the soldiers. And I think in the lead up to that, we had been saying, do you miss your family or do you miss your wives? And this older sounding voice said, I miss her. And then Simone asked a question, which you can hear in the you know, recording. She asked what anyone's name was, and the same voice answered really clearly, it's Edward. And it, it's just, I think, probably my favorite EVP that we've ever gotten. I'll go ahead and play that now. What's your name? <laughs> What's your name? What's your name? The next one is one that came quite early on in, in the ITC uh, researchers group. And I believe that I taped this, but it also may originate with another member of that group who 
seemed to be getting these messages, and she would let me know when she got them. My nickname, and sort of when the internet started, my nom de plume, as it were, is Lisby, L-I-S-B-Y. So this was just to show that there are times when you cannot really deny that this is not directed at you, because it's a very unusual nickname, and it's very clear. We talked to Lisby. I don't know how to take that in any other way except extremely strong evidence that uh, that all of this is true and that there is a basis in fact behind it all. I have heard this and I have to say it is very clear and it had me curious as to the story behind it. So I'm going to go ahead and play this for the audience now. But yeah, that name will pop up frequently when I do ITC, just to let them know it's me. I believe you have another EVP. And what's the story behind that before I play that for the audience? This is one that I included just to show that my belief that there are technician types who are assisting in instrumental transcommunication. I included this one because um, it sort of bolsters my position that there are technicians that help researchers with the ITC. And this was just a direction, it sounded like, from one to another. And they say, help me fix her box. A box, of course, is kind of the slang term for the, the ghost box. That's what it's always called, the box. I thought that would give you a taste of sometimes the orders and conversations that I will often get between technicians that seem to be helping. That's wonderful. I'm going to go ahead and play that now. We're going to have, we're going to use the echo box now, and open the spare story box. Open the spare story box. Open the spare story box. I think that's okay, just so think, cool. Well, you know, what's really funny is that I live in an old house, but I've lived in this old house for 25 years, and it's never been haunted until, like, the last year. And within, like, the last couple months, I've heard audible voices talking. <laughs> you no, know, I've been, so. out, there's been an uptick in that since the pandemic. There has been people coming really? forward. Oh yeah. I have people coming forward to me, asking me to come to their homes to talk with them. People that you would never even imagine having any kind of interest in this. I don't even know if it's that they have an interest or if they're just frightened or they want answers that think maybe I can provide. But yeah, there's an uptick in paranormal activity between sounds, voices, apparitions. And I'm noticing it just with your average folks that and a lot of them are working wow. from home and right. a lot of them have been at home off of work. So maybe it's because they're home that they're noticing this more. But I tend to think that maybe there's something bigger going on. That's really interesting. Yeah. I am the type of medium where when I get things from the other side, I'm getting them, you know, you sort of, you get them with your third eye or your third ear or whatever you want to call it. It's clairaudient or clairvoyant, but I'm not one that's ever really heard audible voices that I believed when I heard them was somebody real, somebody living talking to me. But twice in the last couple months, yeah. I've come down late at night to, uh, have a snack and uh, I was sitting here in my office minding my own business and someone said my name just said Anne 
and it was so loud and so clear, and it sounded like it came from the top of the basement step. And last night I came down, and again, a voice that sounded like it was coming from the top of the basement step. And in both cases, it was a woman just said, hello. Wow. Yeah. And I've never experienced that before. So it's a totally sort of new development, and I don't know who it is. I kind of hope it's Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because sometimes she does make an appearance. But yeah, it's very interesting. In one of my interviews recently, the woman that I was speaking to spoke about how the veil is thinning. I really believe more than ever right now the veil is thin or at its thinnest. And we're coming up into uh Samhain. We're coming up yes, into right. to the Halloween season. So that's a very special time. Yes, it is. And and I agree that I do think that this time of year, whether it's because of the collect sort of the collective thought form that happens because people are excited about Halloween and this is the time of year when you think about those kind of things. Does that boost enough energy to cause more manifestations of a paranormal kind? I'm not sure, but it, it certainly seems like it might be a logical thing. Definitely. To think. Yeah. Most of your paranormal experiences, do they tie in with the Gettysburg area? Well, I I grew up actually in the Washington, D.C. area, suburban Washington, D.C. So a lot of my early experiences were based around that area. Here's a good story. This will just sort of show you how weird it can get. And you've probably experienced something similar, I think. Back in the 1980s, my mother was a cafeteria lady. She served kids their food. I'm sure we all remember being in the cafeteria line in elementary school. Yeah. And my mother was kind of a, bless her, was a crotchety old lady. And she hated all the kids. She just hated <laughs> them. Except for this one little girl whose name was Rose. My mother adored this little girl. She told me all about her, just how wonderful she was. I remember my mother had described her to me as being dark-haired and Asian. So I sort of already had this visual of her in my mind. I never met her. I never even saw a picture of her. I think it was around maybe 1985 or so. This little girl was abducted and murdered. Mm. And it was just heartbreaking for my mother. Yeah. And not too long afterwards, I started getting this feeling that there was a little girl in my apartment occasionally. I, I can't really put my finger on it in any other way than I just felt like psychically, I felt like she was there. She didn't do anything like, you know, talk or laugh or anything. I didn't hear her. I just kind of felt that she was there. And at that point, I was still using a reel-to-reel -to, -reel to tape EVP, so we're before ITC. I was taping with a friend, and I asked of somebody completely different about a person, an individual that we knew. And when I played it back, there was a, there was a very loud little girl's voice. I don't know what she was referring to, but she said, that's amazing Spanish, Harry. Wow. <laughs> and... I have no idea. I guess I just picked up some stray comment, but it was a little girl's voice, and that kind of buttressed my belief that, that there was a little girl in the house. You said in the beginning that my family is spiritualist, and, and they are. My father was on the board of directors at the Spiritualist Church of Two Worlds in Washington, D.C. for probably, I don't know, 40 years. And 
every year spiritualists do a national convention where they all come together and do their business and it's like any other convention except that the whole thing normally starts with a message giving night in the spiritualist church at the end of a religious service normally people who are mediums get up and give messages from the deceased to people in the audience so this was that but just on a much bigger scale and i knew that it was going to be a mob scene because there were some really well-known mediums there so i had tried to get down to dc as fast as i could and get to the church and when i got there every single seat was taken except for room on the end of a pew that was underneath this sort of overhang it was not a place where you could even really be seen from the stage. I just took it and I thought, well, I'm not going to get anything. They can't see me. They'll never come to me. So the first medium, and, and all of the mediums were only going to give four messages apiece. So that meant no more than like 20 people were going to get messages. So the first guy gets up there, and I see him kind of making a strange face, and then he points back in the corner to where I am and he says you know I've got a message for you and I'm like this is the very first message and it's to me and I don't even know how he can see me and he says there's a little girl here she really really wants you to know that she's here I had one of those psychic amnesia moments it was just like I went blank totally I just shook my head I went no I don't know any little girl she's like <laughs> she's like she's a little girl with dark hair I'm like, no, I don't know. I could not. It was just total blank. So he's like, all right, I'm going to leave that with you and move on. And so the next medium was a really well-known medium. Her name was Anne Gaiman. She was an incredibly impressive woman who was wearing this, like, sort of white robe that night. She was the next medium, and she gets up, and she points her finger at me, and she says, Rose, who is Rose? Wow. And I just nodded and said, okay, I know who she is. And she said, good, because if you don't acknowledge her, that little girl's not going to let anybody else have a message. So that was just an amazing thing to me because I had had validation from my own psychic input from the EVP and then from two mediums who did not know me from Adam. That's something that's always stuck with me. That validation just, it, it still to this day blows me away when that happens. I don't know how anyone can be skeptical after that. It's really hard to be, especially after you've done this for such a long time, because you see plenty of stuff that is not real. And you get better and better at sort of being able to go, mm, you know, this is really sketchy as opposed to, no, this is the real deal. Right. And when you have that many sources of validation, you just have to stop and go, okay, I give up. This is real. That's so and, true. Uh, yeah, I yeah. speak as if it is fact. And it's pretty funny, some of the looks that I get. I just speak as if it is and always has been. And Well, I, I, I would I would think in your position that you would have to be because, I mean, frankly, you've got some of the most amazing communication Thank that you. I've ever heard. Thank you so much. I mean, that's why that's why I got in touch with you to begin with, was because I was so impressed. And I remain so impressed. I'm impressed by what is given to me. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I just, I try to stay humble and just let my heart connect and let it go. Because you can really set expectations for things that may not happen. And I think, as you know, with EVP and messages, 
spirit only gives you what they want you to have. It's, it's, it's not, right. you can't ask for something and expect an answer. Uh, as far as expectations go, you can't expect it. You, you have to let them give you the message and then you deliver the message. And that's all you can do. Interpretation is even up in the air as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard. Yeah. 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 But, but, you know, when I listen to the sessions that you post on YouTube, I hear, you know, direct answers to direct questions. There doesn't leave much room for any other interpretation. Sometimes I feel as if it's a puzzle, though, the way they speak. Yes. Yeah. I've noticed that, too. I'm always looking for any little clue that gives me more of an understanding of why do they sometimes talk like that? What is their reality like? Right. What are they truly experiencing? What is really their connection with a divinity or... Uh, one of the questions that I really have not received a satisfactory answer to is the issue of the light and why some people seem to disappear into this light and move on to another level. Well, and they can come back after that, and they do, and why others seem to be just basically wandering. Yeah. And there's such a high number of people, and when you try to fit that question into, especially a Western religious philosophy, it doesn't make a lot of sense. There doesn't seem to be any reason why some people get magically taken and <laughs> some people don't. And also, too, the fact that some of the people that appear to be left behind are actually very small children. That's my, that was going to be my point. I, that was going to be my interjection was, why the children? Why the children? Exactly. And mm. I've heard some EVPs over the years. The one that really set me off wondering about this question was taped by, it was someone in the Midwest who went to cemeteries and just taped EVPs at cemeteries. And several of the EVPs that he got were actually according to him, collected at graves of infants. And in these recordings, you hear what sounds like very young babies crying. Wow, yeah. Why would that happen? Why would these little creatures who can't possibly have done anything wrong in their life, why are they left behind? And you can't it's, say it's residual because if he's in a cemetery recording this, it's not like as if he's in the nursery. Yeah. I mean, why are these little children there? And there were many recordings that he made and many I've heard from other people, again, from cemeteries where there's little children saying, you know, play with me or things like that. I still cannot understand why a divinity figure or what have you would leave these little souls behind but they seem to be there nonetheless yeah and what is the connection between us quote unquote using our light opening our light which i'm assuming is connected somehow to our mediumship to moving these people on i mean the whole craze right now is you go to a, a place and you sort of suss out what's there you get evps and then you try to move people on to the light, right? Right. What makes us able to do it, but they can't move themselves? That's a great question. I don't, I don't think it's as simple as praying 
I'm not sure what it is that a living person's light can do for a dead person. <laughs> I'm just not sure. I've tried so. to figure that out. I have a friend of mine that co-hosts the show with me that's a former Catholic nun. And it seems like when I open up sessions with her, we tend to get people, or mostly children, that ask to be crossed. If they're afraid, it seems as though we have to say more prayers and pull more strength within ourselves to try to get them to cross. I don't think it's a right. It's that we can make them cross. I think they have to want to or not be afraid to. And then, I, I agree, yeah. Yeah. And then I think there are some that just don't want to leave. They want to be where they are. The longer they're here, it's kind of like they get an amnesia. They forget where their true home is and they just kind of wander. I don't know how true that is. This is based on some of the books that I've read. That's interesting. That is. Yeah, I I wonder about it because there does seem to be some validity to the idea that we can assist them in, in moving on. But the mechanism by which we're doing it is still something that I'm not not really clear. For example, there's a, a really fantastic group called EVP Mediums. Are you familiar with them? I at think all? I've heard of them, yes. They used to do quite a bit of YouTube videos, and I, I always watched them because their communication through their box and their, you know, their apps, when I say box, I mean the apps too, was really spectacular. But they were very much of the belief that at the end of their session that they needed to try to move on anyone who was there and they would do it with the box on at the time and it was really kind of indisputable that what was coming through as this crossing was taking place really did in fact sound like people who were overjoyed to finally leave right so yeah it, that's another thing that really fascinates me is just what what is going on? What is this process of translating as a newly deceased entity into whatever this next dimension is that we seem to inhabit after we die? And as far as the people staying behind, I have no doubt why probably about 80% of them stay behind. I don't think it's because nobody came to get them necessarily, but I, I, I and I think I heard you mention this earlier, I do think that there's a lot of people who are so terrified of the whole Judeo-Christian concept of hell that they think they're going there, and so it's better for them to run away and hide and never face their sins. And I think that may be why a lot of them are still around, but that, of course, still doesn't explain why little infants would still be left behind. Yeah, I, yeah. you always have more questions than answers. And it just that's seems... What, that, that's what makes us keep doing this. It's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah. We just keep getting those puzzle pieces to fill that whole picture in. I am hesitant to ever consider myself an expert when I'm called that by other people because I feel like I'm always learning and I definitely don't know everything. Yeah. It's just such a growing and, and process. I, I think the minute that you start saying that you do is when you need to take a step back and really reassess. For sure yourself that's because i know that after all these years i still feel like i've been lucky enough to scratch the surface but i've never gotten any deeper than that and i don't know everything i just want to what we do is mediumship as well but we're presenting an evidence 
an actual physical evidence, something you can hear with your ears. Did you ever hear or know of a woman named Sandra Belanger? She was involved in the Lacey Peterson abduction in that she was getting messages from Lacey Peterson. Does that ring a bell with you? The name does. Lacey Peterson was that heavily pregnant woman who was, well, she was killed by her husband. At first, he was claiming that she was abducted on Christmas Eve. This was in California uh, back in, I want to say, the late 90s, I think. And anyway, it was like a national case, and everybody was completely obsessed about it. And they hadn't been able to find her body. And Sandra... She was using, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this either, because this is a really old school ITC. There was a application. It was one of the first apps. It was by a French guy named Stephen Dion, I think his name was. And it was called EDP Maker. And he had taken, he, this was the very first person to do it. He had taken a bunch of audio, clipped it up into tiny, tiny little fragments that then you play back just like you do with GhostBox apps today, and they form something of the words. Anyway, Sandra used EVP Maker, and she started getting these messages from Lacey Peterson telling her that her husband had killed her and telling her literally directions to find her body. Sandra, I have the honor to say, was a very fine friend of mine. She died of cancer four years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And she took all of this information to the police and gave it to them. And, of course, she went through the experience that everyone sort of goes through if you go to the police of, are you really the one the one what done it, you know? Yeah. But her information was so exact, and it was just indisputable. And she couldn't get the police to listen to her. She went to Jeff Renz, and he played it all on his show, and that is actually how I heard it. And I was really impressed with, with what she had gotten. I never forgot her name or having heard this. So to conclude the Lacey Peterson story, she basically pinpointed where the body was. Wow. I mean, she was, it was amazing. That is amazing. Um, and it, and not very long after she provided all of this information to the police, the body of Lacey Peterson and her infant child washed up almost exactly where they would have if they had been in the water where she said they were. Wow. And when Lacey Peterson's mother wrote a book about it some years later, if you look at that book today, in the back of the book, she talks about Sandra and how all of these other quote-unquote psychics had given her all of this information about where her daughter was, but the only one that was right, Sandra. So, yeah, in many ways, people like Sandra really kicked the door open. And I, I didn't know her then, but years later, we met through Frank Sumption because she was also a friend of his. And I was really honored to be able to spend some time with her during the last couple of years of her life before she passed away. And there's a lot of other really great researchers like her, some of whom never, you know, really stepped out of the shadows and who really deserve to be remembered for all the work that they've done. I agree. The field because they made this all possible. And everybody that's doing it today is standing on the shoulders of these good people. For sure. So The best researchers are the ones with the heart. And they're the ones that 
don't care about fame or limelight. They do the work because they're drawn to it and they feel a duty mm -hmm. to, to serve through it. Yeah, and she was really just sort of driven to distraction by it all. Lacey Peterson just was not going to take no for an answer. She wanted Sandra to keep on this until they found her body. And then after they did find her body, apparently Lacey was very upset because they also hadn't found her head. Oh. Yes, she told Sandra that she had been roped to a specific buoy in the water and that if they went back and looked, they would probably find her head there too. But she really wanted her whole body to be recovered. Um, that's so interesting. At the same time, she would send messages about how she was, wherever she is now, was cooking and she was going to make food and for Sandra. And she was sort of sending these carefree messages too. So it wasn't all suffering and pain. I think it was just taking her a while to come to terms with her new environment and to deal with the way that her life had ended so prematurely. And the life of her child, she was due to give birth any time she was murdered. So wow, it yeah. must be a very traumatic passing. But she was around for that period of time, and then it seems like perhaps she was at peace afterwards and the communication stopped. Wow. That's so amazing. Yeah. I'm sorry for your loss with your friend, and she was an amazing yeah, person. Yeah, she was. She yeah. was amazing. I'm sure she's met up with her in the afterlife. I hope so. Well, you've been an amazing guest. Thank you so much. I love your stories. I would love to have you back on because I'm sure there's plenty more. There um, are. <laughs> I loved being able to talk with you about EVP and ITC because there's not many that are familiar with it. It's such a, it is still kind of a niche thing. Getting your perspective. As a reporter, as a journalist, my natural inclination is to just watch and collect back. That's always the position that I've taken. It's been delightful. <laughs> Thank you. To the spirit. Podcast. Supernatural science. Alien. I'm ghosting. Ghost. 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 Psychic. Mystic. Spirit. Divine source. Heaven. Magic. Magic. Magic.